I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to the Details Long Read. It's one in-depth story read by us every weekend. This week it's The School Away From School, written by Bill Morris, published in NZ Geographic magazine's February 2023 issue. You can find the entire article with photos from Lottie Headley on nzgeo.com. It's about the incredible changes over the decades of New Zealand's correspondence school, now more vital than ever before. This is an abridged version of The School Away From School. Robin Long grew up at Gorge River in a home accessible only by a two-day tramp through southwestland forest. The family had access to a telephone exactly twice a year when they walked out to civilization to restock supplies and catch up with friends. Schooling for Robin and her brother Chris came from the Correspondence School in Wellington, a monthly package of workbooks that arrived when a tramper carried it in from the road end or a friendly helicopter pilot took the time to drop it off. Robin's mother, Catherine, guided the children through their lessons. It was very efficient, Robin says. When I finally did go to a normal school, I couldn't believe how much time was wasted Outside of the little house, the kids sought learning from the hills, ocean and bush that surrounded them, and from visitors who occasionally arrived at Gorge River. The Long's experience of living so far from educational facilities, one shared by thousands of children on remote sheep farms, islands and, in the old days, at lighthouses, is a way of life that has all but vanished in New Zealand now. Geographical distance has decreased. The roads are better the vehicles more comfortable, and of course the internet brings the outside world far closer to everyone. The correspondence school, Te Aho o Tikura Ponamu, or simply Tikura, as it is now usually called, is celebrating its centenary this year. Today, Tikura caters for only around 400 geographically isolated students. That's about 1% of the role. But is there still distance in New Zealand society? You bet. James Prendergast of Hamilton was born female, but at the age of 14 began transitioning to male. Teachers, his peers and many of his family rejected his journey outright. People just wouldn't have a bar of it, he says. I went through a lot of bullying and harassment. I wasn't allowed to wear the uniform I wanted to wear. I wasn't being addressed by my name. I was being purposely addressed by pronouns that were incorrect. It was severely depressing and really anxiety-inducing. I had panic attacks about just waking up and going to school. If I managed to get to school, I'd just be in the health centre crying. He attempted suicide. Afterward, he realised he simply couldn't stick with mainstream education. His options? Drop out or find a different sort of school. Tikura is the largest school in the country. Its role of almost 30,000 includes a vast assortment of students. There are adults, including those who are in prison. There are also many young adult learners, typically teenagers in their last years of school, who pick up a few Tikura courses alongside regular schooling. There are also just over 5,000 full-time students, around half of whom are Māori. Students under the age of 16 cannot opt in to Takura. 
they need to be referred through the Ministry of Education, Oranga Tamariki, or the Department of Corrections through one of a number of gateways. For some, the gateway is geographic isolation. Others are high achievers, sports people say, whose lifestyle involves a lot of travel. Some get in because they're temporarily living overseas. There are also around 4,000 students who, like Prendergast, just can't function in normal schools. Kids who get repeatedly expelled, who stop turning up, who are badly bullied or suffer from mental health issues that make learning impossible. For these kids, the school can be life-changing. One of the first things the teacher asked me, Prendergast says, was, can I ask your pronouns? So already that was amazing, that someone even acknowledged it. Once he'd got used to the self-directed learning and the discipline needed to get out of bed and get online, Prendergast flourished in the Takura system. The school, he says, provided a safe environment for him to learn and grow in. With Takura, I never felt like I was just another student, I felt like I was part of a community. The Correspondence School began in 1922 as a single desk in the Department of Education, staffed by one teacher, Janet McKenzie. Her initial role was to serve around 25 primary school children who lived in remote parts of New Zealand. By the end of McKenzie's first year, however, the role had swelled to 100. Within five years, it hit 720. The school kept growing throughout the 20th century, providing a vital bridge to education for tens of thousands of students. During the 1948 polio pandemic, when all school students in New Zealand were forced to stay at home, the correspondence school stepped up, sending schoolwork to every home in the country. But by the 1990s, the school was suffering something of an identity crisis. The role had grown to almost 20,000 students, most of them urban, many of whom had been expelled from multiple schools. The Board of Trustees, largely made up of parents of farming families, was struggling to manage the enormity of their task. By the early 2000s, the school was in financial trouble and its performance was severely criticised by the Education Review Office, or the ERO. The government stepped in to appoint a new board, and by 2006, the books were again balanced. This was when Mike Hollings, he's Nati Rokawa, Teati Haunui a Paparangi, took over. I was charged with improving educational outcomes, the chief executive officer says, moving the school to a more 21st century model using technology, online learning, and also better accommodating the needs of Maori students. The first step was actually changing the hearts and minds of staff, becoming more culturally adept, if you like. We have a strong focus on developing people's te reo Māori and a strong focus on making sure that the programmes we've got look engaging for Māori students. Part of the new push was also to decentralise the school from its Thorndon headquarters. The school opened offices in Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington and Christchurch with sub-offices in surrounding towns. Today there are 250 sites around the country where students and teachers can meet on a weekly or even daily basis. The best results, Hollings and his team know, come where the teachers are deeply connected to their community. They know the people, they know all the iwi affiliations and they know where the kids come from. 
it does make a big difference in how students and whānau interact with the school, he says. Takura tailors each student's curriculum to their interests and tries to give them agency to put them, rather than the teacher, in charge of their education. It also likes to get students involved in community activities and internships, which Hollings describes as the ultimate learning experience. We've got kids in florist shops, bike shops and early childhood centres, he says. We're working with the Department of Conservation, symphony orchestras, Shakespeare companies and theatres. Whatever the kids have got passions about. At Takura, we don't have the tyranny of the timetable. We don't have buildings that restrict us. It worked for Prendergast, who was able to turn his life around with the school. His interests in marine biology and history were woven into his education. Observing how his teachers interacted with their students, he discovered a passion for teaching himself. He is now working as a teacher aide and planning to get a teaching degree. Margaret Sullivan of Taupuri knew she wanted to be a teacher at the age of two. If I won lotto tomorrow, I'd still be teaching, she tells me. I'm sitting in the passenger seat of her car, watching the low hills of Northland fly by outside the window. Sullivan's calling lies at the edges of the education system. For the past two decades, her beat has been New Zealand's far north, where she works as a liaison teacher for Takura. When a student stops engaging with their teacher or stops submitting work, it's Sullivan's job to go to the student's house, assess what's happening and re-engage them in their education. Two decades ago, Sullivan started a programme called EnviroSkills. She organises camps in which students learn skills they can use in the rural environment, like possum trapping, spraying, fencing and motorbike riding. It's helped many kids find their way to employment and the programme has been adopted all around New Zealand. She's done hundreds of thousands of miles along Northland's back roads, journeys that have immersed her in a side of New Zealand life that many might struggle to comprehend. Poverty, she tells me, is everywhere here. But it's not always obvious. You have to know where to look. We pass through Kaio and head towards Monganui. To the east, bays are filled with holiday homes and yachts. We turn inland following a rutted and windy gravel road. After some time, we emerge into a valley that cradles a loose settlement. There are houses wrapped in rotten weatherboard and black plastic sheeting. Broken car bodies litter the fields. A bit further on, we arrive at the house belonging to Marie Robertson, who is Napui and Natikahuki Whaiangaroa. It's fairly new, large and well-appointed, an anomaly in this area, but Robertson's whānau story is typical of so many Māori families. My mum was smacked for learning her tongue at school, she tells me. At home, they could be themselves. But then you go to school, you have to be someone else. That disconnect is still in play. Robertson's mother moved around a lot, and as a young girl, Robertson was shifted from school to school, constantly feeling like she was falling behind in her studies. If your teacher's busy worrying about the high achievers and not worrying about the ones that need help, she says, there's no relationship, there's no bond. If they don't try and understand that every child learns differently, it causes even more of a barrier. That's how kids slip through the system.
Eventually, she was enrolled in Takura and assigned a teacher called Barbara Ayres. She spent hours with me, says Robertson, just learning who I was, what my family life was like, what my strengths were with learning. And that's when I noticed my education started picking up. I started loving every subject. At 17, Robertson became pregnant. Ayres convinced Robertson not to give up on her schooling, even when a second child came along less than a year later. Sometimes I was up late at night, Robertson recalls. I'd sit there when my babies were content and read them my schoolwork. We found a way to make it work and we got through. Now Robertson has six children. She's put them all through Takura, supervising them herself. She tells me Takura incorporates kōpapa Māori, or Māori ways of doing things, far more than any school she's dealt with. Sullivan and I carry on our journey. Our next stop is with the Gates whānau, a family of 11 kids, six of whom still live with their parents. Right now, they're staying in bell tents on a farm. Mother Anita, who's Naitahu, is supervising her school-aged children through Tikura. When we arrive, a cluster of laptops are set up around a shared table between the two tents. It started with her two oldest boys, both of whom suffered severe anxiety while attending a local school. I had to drag them to the school bus crying some days, Gates says. Sometimes I'd let them stay home because I didn't want to be horrible. One of my boys was bullied, and then I found out that one of my sons had become a bully. He told me that's the only way to survive at the school. It just seemed like the right thing just to have them all at home. But getting the kids enrolled with Takura wasn't easy. Because there was a school bus available at the end of their road, they were initially not considered eligible. But since the switch, Gates has noticed an enormous improvement. They all have different styles of learning, she says. For instance, Promise, my second child, you couldn't sit him down at a table. He would have been classified as ADHD, but he's not. He just learns differently. He's active. He had to be outside, writing the ABCs on stones and lining them up. You've got to find creative ways of doing stuff. Our journey continues towards Northland's wild west coast. Along the way, Sullivan recounts stories of her encounters in Northland. The first visit to a home, she says, is always the most difficult. First, she jingles her keys at the gate to make sure there are no dogs loose on the property. Once inside, she immediately scans the room for light bulbs. Methamphetamine smokers use them as pipes. The empty light sockets are an instant giveaway. Sometimes, she says, the dogs are given the used implements to lick. Sullivan tells me she's not afraid of any person she meets, but guard dogs jacked up on meth, that's another story. One time she visited a house and found it being raided by the police. The mother calmly led the child out through the cordon so Sullivan could take her elsewhere to work. On another occasion, she ended up working in a cobweb-infested house with a boy who, every time she praised his work, would go outside and kick the dog. 
Sullivan thinks he'd never been praised before and simply didn't know how to deal with it. In the end, she took him out to do his lessons in her car. I often do that, she tells me, when there's no light bulbs. Out of this rough patch, though, Sullivan has nurtured many success stories. And in the process, she has embedded herself in the hearts of students and whānau around Northland. She gets invited to weddings, attends tangihanga, and when she has to, stands beside wayward kids on their days in court. I always say yes if I can, she says, because that's how you become part of a community. If you say no, they stop asking. As Sullivan drives me back to Whangarei Airport, I think of how in the old days correspondence school teachers would tramp into remote lighthouses and sheep stations to meet their students. Sullivan, it seems to me, is the last of that tradition, still going the long miles to bring education to the back blocks of New Zealand. But this image is fading. The real front line for Takura now is not along these rural roads. It's in towns and cities where our education system is in a state of crisis. Pick a metric. It'll be grim. But perhaps most tellingly, our kids are struggling with the basics. Our literacy and numeracy results on both international and national tests have slipped over the past 20 years and are particularly dire right now. Likewise, school attendance is dropping, a problem which kicked in well before COVID-19 did. Melissa Darby, she's Nati Ranganui, is a senior lecturer teaching early literacy and human development at the University of Waikato. She says social media and bullying are likely factors fueling anxiety around going to school. I think of Marie Robertson and her whanau when Darby says intergenerational trauma plays a role too. Home-school partnerships are crucial in terms of children flourishing, she says. If the mother in particular had a bad experience at school, that can pass on to the child. Parents are less likely to go into school to ask questions of teachers or to engage with the school. That can create a barrier. It's clear what happens when a child meets such a barrier. Study after study has found Māori are not performing as well at school as other groups. In fact, they don't make it to school each day as much as other groups. Critically, 19% of Māori students leave school with no qualification, compared to 9% of non-Māori. Russell Bishop, who is Tainui and Ngāti Pukeko, is a Foundation Professor of Māori Education at the University of Waikato and has written extensively on the subject. Traditionally, being Māori meant being second best, he says. That's the whole basis of colonisation. And unfortunately, that idea has carried on. And in schooling, it comes out now in what is termed deficit theorising. Deficit theorising is, in effect, victim-blaming, the recurring idea that Māori are destined to fail at school. This, Bishop's research shows, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If teachers expect less of Māori students, they won't push them to succeed. And so often, they don't. Importantly, the converse is true too. A study Bishop conducted 20 years ago found the major impediment to Māori students' achievement was the relationship they had with their teachers. 
Their teachers thought they were not able to do the same work as non-Māori, he says. They were seen as having deficiencies. They were seen as wanting. Tikura is increasingly being tasked with picking up the tab. It's non-enrolled admissions, kids who have been expelled from multiple schools or who have simply stopped attending, have skyrocketed in recent years. Half of these students are Māori. The ERO completed a review of Takura in late 2021 in which it flagged that the school was increasingly being relied upon as a safety net for high-risk students. The report said that while Takura was doing well with what it had, the school's funding was simply not enough, and that was constraining its ability to help the students who needed it most. Akonga, students with moderate and high additional learning support needs are disadvantaged in this respect when they're enrolled at Takura, the report said. It is inequitable that some of our most disadvantaged and at-risk Akonga are accessing a part of the system with the least support. On the back of that report, Takura received an additional $15.5 million in the 2022 budget, specifically to deal with at-risk students. Since we've got this additional funding, says Hollings, we have a lot of kaiafina, or teacher aides, that we have put in place. Many of those visit homes and work with the students, but we've also got more locations that Akonga can come to, so they're not just confined to home. Weekly huinga ako, or advisory meetings, are a crucial part of Takura's learning system. They provide opportunities for students to meet with their teachers and interact with other students. Sporting events are also arranged. They're a chance for students to have some of the social interaction that learning from home may lack. Takura's innovative approach to learning has been a lifeline for thousands of students who otherwise might have been left behind in education. A hundred years since its inception, it's still bridging barriers in New Zealand society. As the recent ERO report says, there is a clear role for Takura in the education of diverse and at-risk akonga. Meeting the needs of these akonga should be a whole-of-system responsibility. There needs to be confidence that the rest of the system is doing all it can to retain and engage its akonga. Russell Bishop, in discussing the fate of Māori in our education system, is more blunt. Takura should not have to be picking up the pieces for schools that are not catering for Māori children. In Bishop's view, successful education is all about building and nurturing a community of learners, students, teachers, staff, and crucially, Fano and the wider community. For James Prendergast, the transgender kid from Hamilton who found his way in the world through Takura, it was that sense of community more than anything that made the difference. There's a lot of love, he says, of the learning community found with Takura, a lot of araha for students. I'm still in contact with my kaimanaki, or support person, all the time. They always message me and always get so excited if I stop into the office. It's like family. That was The School Away From School, written by Bill Morris, published in NZ Geographic magazine's February 2023 issue. The detailed long read is produced by Newsroom with support from the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Ka kite anō.